Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And today we are going to discuss a book called A Sound Mind, How I Fell in Love with Classical Music and Decided to Rewrite Its Entire History by Paul Morley. And Kimley, this is a very special show. Do you agree? Indeed. Very special. Because we actually have a guest here, and it is Mr. Paul Morley. Paul, oh, welcome to yeah, uh, Book you. Music. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, am I meant to be here, or were you wanted to talk behind my back? I can't tell. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Maybe okay. we'll, anything is possible in this world. <laughs> Paul, you're to us, you're a very well-known uh, music journalist, writer. I have seen your uh, interviews on, on, uh, on the Guardian newspaper. I'm not sure if you're still doing that, but I, I, you did a great series some years back on... Um, focusing on certain types of music or music movements. And it was sort of like a multimedia presentation for the paper. You know, I was a big fan of that series you were doing for a while. Yeah. But generally, I really enjoyed all your books in the past, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years. Like I've lost track of time. Yeah, keep pushing. But your new book, A Sound Mind, How I Fell in Love with Classical Music, yeah. and decided to rewrite its entire history. Yeah. It's a full title. This is actually totally new and unexpected for me that you will go into the classical music world and I wonder, what, what was your entranceway to the classical music world? Well, in terms of writing about it, I think I, I was getting to an age, if you like, in my 50s, where because once you become something in life, then people think that's you forever. I was still being asked to write about the pop music of the day. And in my 50s, I, I felt that was a little bit undignified, if you like. You know, I was still being uh, rung up to ask, mm-hmm. you know, to write about Harry Styles or something. And um, some people have said to me, wasn't it a, a midlife crisis that you suddenly decided to listen to and write about lots of classical music? But, but for me, funnily enough, the midlife crisis was actually keeping writing about pop music and young people's music. I, I still wanted to write about new music, but um, I, I, I decided that, uh, oddly enough, a lot of new music to me was music that sometimes was centuries old because it was new to me. Yes. Um, and classical music suddenly unfolded in front of me, especially with streaming, where I could get access to it so easily. It was all available, this extraordinary history. And as someone, as a writer, who always like to, if you like, find a music scene and, and discover a music scene. Um, I almost made up a music scene, if you like, one that already existed, that I could map out my own personal history of. It gave me something... I wanted to keep writing about music. I've always been fascinated with how you write about music and the experience mm-hmm. of listening to music. And this gave me an opportunity to to write about um, untold new treasures, uh, untold um, centuries of, of what to me was new music. So the last part of the title, decided to rewrite its entire history, is actually very true to you while, while, you know, while writing this book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you often find yourself writing these kind of books to find out for yourself uh, what you think about something. And I had a patchy sort of primitive, provisional understanding of the history of classical music. And there was plenty of classical music over the years that I loved in terms of the avant-garde experimental um, edges of, uh-huh. of classical music, where it made contact with the experimental parts of rock. But I didn't. There was there was much that I didn't understand and didn't know, and I wanted to find out. And I, I had the opportunity a few years ago to make a documentary for the BBC, where I kind of studied composition at the Royal Academy of Music, and I and I took on this task, you know, for all sorts of reasons, not least to get on television a bit, but also because I thought it would give me this opportunity to begin my understanding of, of classical music and make up a history. Obviously, there's lots of histories you get told and. And for me, there was sometimes sort of disappointing or whatever. So I thought, well, you know what? I'll, I'll make up my own history. I'll, I'll, I'll work it out for myself. I'll find out for myself how things fitted together leading up to today. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I know I read in the book that you studied how to write, you know, composition. And do, can you now read music, like music on a sheet? Well, I, 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 I can make a. I, I'm, I'm more, I'm more with it than I was before I, I, I did this composition course. And, and, and oddly enough, I, I started to. I mean, it's interesting that you can write about music um, to such an extent and have opinions about music, but technically know nothing about how it's made, 
or written. You, you, you don't have any technical understanding of it, but obviously you have an emotional response. So I was kind, mm. kind of intrigued at a certain age that if I did find out how you wrote music and could read a score, what that would do to me as a writer. It was a kind of risk in a way, like a, a, mm -hmm. a golfer almost changing his swing midway through his career. I was just interested to see if it would make a difference to how I responded to music. So it was, it was an interesting task to... to, to find out if it would interfere with my instincts, if you like. But what I found, that I, I kind of fell in love with the score, the actual writing down of music, almost as if it itself was a, a literary object. I, I, I got carried away in, 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 with, with just loving this way of transmitting information about music and how that for centuries had been the only way that music was recorded, if you like. It was how music was recorded before electronic recording. And I, I got very excited about that i'd always been excited about that to an extent that that moment when in the 20th century music started to be recorded and we could we could hear it again and again and again it seemed to me a very kind of significant moment and then suddenly i i i, I could understand uh, at the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th how there was this change between music only being stored through the score and then suddenly being electronically stored and and that was another part of the book that that i wanted to you know i wanted to explore in the book so you you start writing m music basically for the purpose of of, of your of your literal writing. I mean, did you ever had an urge to just write a composition because you feel a need to write a composition? Or? Yeah, I've I've always had that. I mean, I've always been involved at the edges of of composition because I've worked in recording studios with you know I, I worked with a group called the Art of Noise and mm -hmm. a group called Infant Joy. So I would be in the studio and I, ha I would have opinions and I would m maybe shape a, a composition and, and give it a title and, and, and make contributions in a more abstract way. But I didn't play a musical instrument. I, 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 I hmm. didn't um, have an, any uh, skill in that sense. So uh, for me, it was, yeah, it was, it was another thing. I, I think I'm always looking for things to write about in terms of writing about music. I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated, thank God, because I've been doing it for long enough now, about how you write about music, what you're actually doing, what, 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 what are you expressing when you write about music? Because obviously you're using one medium to, to discuss another. And to some extent, music in itself says it all. So what, what are we adding by writing about it? So I think I was just looking for more and more sort of ammunition, if you like, more and more oh. um, ways that I could extend this, you know, 40, 50 year um, expedition now in in how to write about music. You know, reading your book, I always feel like it's an open conversation, which I really, really enjoy. You know, the fact that you actually studied music to actually sort of write the book or just, you know, just to think about it more is really, for a reader, it's a really interesting process to, to go through that with you. You know, is there, was there like actual a pop band that made you headed towards classical music? since you came from the pop music world? Well, in the 1970s, the, the significant figure in that sense was Brian Eno, who, yes. you know, in, when he was in Roxy Music, was, was obviously a sort of glam rock hero uh, and, and very interesting to look at on television and, and part of a really exciting group. And he very quickly, by the second album, had left Roxy Music and started to make this very, um, very abstract, very beautiful instrumental music. Mm -hmm. um, that at the time I didn't really understand it other than that I really loved it and almost had a religious attachment to it. He, he made a record called No Pussy Footing with yes. uh, Robert Fripp, like this wonderful kind of uh, drone loop, uh, looping yeah. of Fripp's guitar, beautiful. And, and he obviously launched this fabulous record label called Obscure Records, which was basically him cataloging his own fascination with, with American minimalism and, and English experimental music of the 1960s. And I, and I absolutely love that. And uh, it, it, the, the album he made in that series, the Obscure series, Discreet Music, which was essentially, if you think about it, actually more of a classical album than it was a pop album. But, but what I was always interested in, and I guess this started my interest in this, was just breaking through these borders, breaking through the boundaries so that there was no real sense of genre. It was just all music. And, and very definitely, I think... Brian Eno opened lots of um, portals, if you like, because I realised very quickly that what he had been influenced by, like the Steve Rices, the Philip Glasses, the Lamont Youngs, Morton Fellmans in the 60s and 50s. So I'd, I'd always been interested in that experimental end of, of, of rock music, not least because 
you know, it always happens when you're a teenager, a, a pop musician you like, you, you kind of, they were, they were like the Google searches of our day. You kind of look at everything they're interested in, find out what they're interested in and go and find out about it. Because if they're interested, you want to be, you want to be interested. Now, I'm just saying that's the beauty of Roxy music, that there's sort of like yeah. a foundation for you to go to other, you know, you could, you could sort of study cinema, other types of music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everything from like surf music to avant-garde music. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but Roxy music definitely introduced me to a lot of uh, new sounds and new people. Yes, so I, I think it is that sense that a, a group could, could be influenced by so many things beyond music, influenced by art and theater and drama and, and um, you know, avant-garde happenings. And you would use them as a, an index almost to find out other things, to, to make other discoveries. I suppose it was pre-digital in the sense that you had to go out of your way to find new things because it wasn't as easy as it is now to find new things. You didn't have yeah. a Google search. So an album, um, a favorite musician would be your doorway into other possibilities. Yeah. You know, I, was, I was raised in a household that, that had like John Cage records and Eric Satie records and Edgar Baris records. So <laughs> I had that sort of background as a child, <laughs> but <laughs> since it was my parents' music, I really didn't take it seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that that's the key for me because in the book I write about how, at sixteen or seventeen, you would you would listen to uh, more conventional classical music albums, but because it seemed owned by your elders, it seemed owned by an establishment, you were immediately turned off by it, and you didn't pursue any interest in it because it didn't seem to be for you, and also it seemed boring because it didn't seem to have the context that rock and pop music had. It it didn't seem to. Be, it didn't seem to sound as exciting as rock and pop did because it wasn't rec often recorded very well. So in a way, I, I kind of started listening to what we could call classical music through the experimental works of the Eno and the German kraut rock musicians. But I didn't go any further out into a more sort of conventional idea of classical music through through my own snobbery in a way, my own anti-snobbery. And you're, def mm -hmm. you're definitely right. You think of it as your parents' music, which is daft, really. Uh, and, and one of the breakthroughs for me with classical music was was realizing that that at every single stage of of innovation in classical music, it's a series of of revolutionary moments. You know, um, you listen to it in a new way when you think of it not as it sounds, but also or, almost what was going on in the mind of the composer, whether it was a Mozart or a Beethoven or a Schubert. Yeah. You suddenly break through and just see it as psychic energy rather than the, the quaintness, if you like, of what it seemed because of, of the instruments and how it was recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the book isn't organized in any kind of chronological or traditionally historical way. It's organized more in a sort of thematic or really even kind of a philosophical way. I mean, you jump between eras and styles of music and you discuss Iggy Pop and Hindemith on the same page without missing a beat. And you clearly admire the pianist uh, Joanna McGregor for mixing seemingly disparate pieces on one album. So tell us a little bit about why you feel this is so important. Well, it was something that I've always thought. I mean, in, in uh, England, in Britain, we were very lucky in the 60s and 70s to have a disc jockey that the BBC allowed through called John Peel, mm. who, whose, mm. whose music show was, was like that. He would play some dub, he would play some rockabilly, then he'd play some Anton Weben. And there was no sense of it being split into genre, of it not belonging with each other. And um, I noticed when streaming started, and it's been become increasingly so, that... It was always split into genres. Everything was separated into alcoves. Uh, and my mm. instincts were, were always to try and mix things up, to put things together that don't apparently belong, rather than separating them. And I always thought that streaming would be a great opportunity to really sort of accentuate that sort of mix of things and, and the contact between different sorts of music. And I was really disappointed when I realized it was going to be very blocked off into genre and fenced off and and even the uh, any new genres with with things like chill out or coffee break or have a relax or feel depressed. <laughs> you know there was, there was there was no opening up of the suddenly the world fitted together in a new way and you could discover new patterns and i suppose one of the premises of the book for me was to pursue that notion of of what the world musical world would be like if it wasn't so split into genre and so separated uh, which seems to be uh, sort of a, 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 a sort of in opposition to the spirit of music, if you like. I, I guess I wanted to create a history of music for the future where everything worked together and you didn't necessarily have to stay in your own little groove. You, you could move about right. more freely. 
Joanna McGregor is interesting because her her repertoire is so vast, it's so huge. You know, most classical musicians that I am familiar with usually focus on the era of music or yeah. like maybe uh, uh, either they just focus on the romantics or the impressionistics yes. or the sort of the German Vienna music. But she does everything from Moondog to Bach and and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. That was that, that is always exciting to me. I, I think it was interesting when you realize how rigid classical music within its borders can be. And I remember there was an album that I really liked on ECM New Series, which is one of my favorite labels. And they put together a record that combined Mozart and Debussy. And it was 15 years ago. And I remember reading all the reviews and I was always really surprised that within the classical world, it was looked upon with some horror that Debussy would be put with Mozart, that you weren't uh-huh. allowed to do that. You know, you weren't allowed to mix styles, mix centuries, mix composers that didn't belong together. And again, even within classical, where there was an opportunity to be much freer, there seemed to be a, a, a great amount of rigidity about what you could do and you couldn't do. And, and to some extent, you know, that idea that you would make a record, you know, that 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 would have Bartok on it, but that would also have, uh, you know, something written by Björk. It, it seemed sort of normal, but within classical music, I think there's a worry that the purity of their world would be infected somehow. And they, they, they see acts like that as a kind of gimmick uh, that, that yeah. sort of undermines the solidity of, of, of how they operate. Whereas for me, it's a way of opening up. Um, I mean, there's a, a chapter I do in the book called 1973 when I was 16, and I imagined a world that I'd gone through where I wasn't only just listening to rock and pop, but I was also aware of, of classical music from that year, either written that year or performed mm-hmm. that year, that just broke down a few barriers again. And, and I, I, I reimagined the year where I w- was knowing about classical music, so not only liking my John Cales and my Roxy musics and my Kraftworks, but also... Uh, finding Mozart and Bach and, and, and working out how, how that would have, um, you know, in a, in a slightly idealistic way, made the world a slightly better place because, you know, it created a more, a more of a kind of freedom and more of a, a sense of the, the magical properties of music rather than the commercial properties, of, if you like. One of the things that I love about pop music is sort of the characters that come through. Like, you know, there's something like a bot, like somebody like a Bob Dylan or David Bowie, yeah. obviously, or Sid Barrett. There's such mm-hmm. like, interesting characters you're so drawn to the character and then to the music and sometimes the music well for me the music pays off in the end because it fits the character but is there anybody in the classical music world that you were drawn to as a character and then you listen to the music and it go ah you know this is what i you know it it works somehow yeah well i i mean it, it is interesting that sense of what we loved pop and rock for was things other often other than the music the context of it the photographs the images the record sleeves the mm-hmm. interviews the performance the videos the the, the 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 overall sort of performance and obviously with classical music that seems on the outside that it's not happening but i i i guess i discovered within it there were characters that changed their image that changed their personality as much as a a Ziggy to an Aladdin saying to a Diamond Dog, you know, I, I found similar processes where um, they would change and wear different masks. I mean, obviously for me, the first one that I would find that I thought was as exciting in another context as a, as a Dylan or a um, David Boy was John Cage because mm-hmm. he, it, it, you know, from the 1930s onwards is just constantly changing his appearance, his, his his project, his philosophy, his sound, his his music, his you know, is is moving through different styles, different um, senses of possibilities. What music is, what it isn't. Uh, but then even some of the more conventionally minded um, composers, I found, were constantly changing um, who they were and what they were. The Stravinsky's, the Schoenbergs. Even you know the Mozart's is is a constant transformation, much more than a lot of rock and pop musicians. Actually, they're constantly transforming themselves, con- transforming mm-hmm. their sound. They're constantly testing the limits of their abilities and the limits of imaginative possibility. If if I guess it it, it requires a kind of abstract kind of change of perspective of thinking about them and and breaking through how they're often written about, thinking them a, a more a, in in more of a protean mobile way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oddly enough, um, as I think starts to happen in the book, you know, one of the parts of the book is where I begin 
wondering what the last piece of music I ever listened to might be. And I've got a, the beginning of the book, I've got a few choices. By the end of the book, I've got hundreds of choices because one thing leads to another very quickly in the way that yeah. that's what excited us as teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings about rock and pop, the way you kept moving from one thing to another, mm -hmm. following different kind of characters mm -hmm. as they change. And I guess, you know, mm -hmm. I found that in, in, in classical music as well. Even if I just made it up to be that way, you know, everything is made up to be that way in a sense. And But I, I found that you could do it, that there, there were there were musicians that you could find and follow whose entire sort of musical movement was was a, a series of, of changes and shifts in tone and style and, and appearance. I love when you make a comparison of Glenn Gould to Iggy Pop. <laughs> that was hysterical. I think you said something like Glenn Gould was even more Iggy than Iggy. <laughs> Well, the, the uncompromising nature of Glenn Gould is, is undying. <laughs> yes. I think it's, it is when you start to tell stories about these incredible musicians in a way that we, we've always told stories about people like Iggy Pop. We've, made, we've helped make Iggy Pop such a myth by, by, by inventing a mythology of Iggy Pop. And, and in other mm. areas, it, it seems you're not allowed to do that. It, you know, it's something that I wanted to do, funnily enough. I wanted to see if I could write about people like Glenn Gould and... And, and even a Mozart in the way that I used to write about an Iggy Pop or a Joy Division in the NME in the 70s. You know, would I be allowed? Would I, was it permitted? Of course, there's no one that right. really gives you permission. You just, you, just, you just grab the permission yourself. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to take that kind of emotion into the writing about the music that, that I, I traditionally had in the music I, I usually wrote about. I, I wanted to write about Mozart as if it was someone I was covering for the enemy in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. You frequently mention being intimidated at first about writing about classical music and interviewing these classical composers and you were concerned that you needed specialized knowledge and I'm wondering like when you were young and first starting out did you even think about that? I'm guessing that sort of the hubris of youth just propelled you forward and you didn't think about it, but... That's right. I mean, you know, at 22, 23, I'm interviewing people like Lou Reed and, and Patti Smith and Debbie Howard. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and now I look at it and think, oh my God, you know, I, well, what the hell? Yeah. I, how was I doing that? And you're absolutely right. You get self-conscious as you get older. And I, and I started out be very nervous about the idea of talking to a more conventional classical composer, thinking that because I didn't know technical terms, I didn't know the terminology, I didn't know the rituals, I didn't know the history, I, w I would look like a baby. Uh, mm. And it's a, it's a minor task in a way, but it was a task I set myself. You know, would I be able to eventually sit down with, with ultimately in the book, for me, one of the most intimidating classical composers of, 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 of sort of recent times, Harrison Birtwistle, and actually have a conversation with him. Uh, uh, and, and I do, you know, I don't want to give the ending away of the book. You know, there are many endings to give away. That's one of them. But I do manage to sit down and have a conversation with Harrison Birtwistle. So in a way, I go from Harry Styles to Harry, Harry Birtwistle, which is one, <laughs> one journey the book takes. But I was intimidated yeah, about fantastic. that. Could I could I have a conversation with them without looking like I was I, I was completely out of my depth? And I and I suppose I spent quite a few years getting into a position where I could sit down with. Harrison Birtwistle and have a kind of conversation with him. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if if only people who had complete knowledge of a field wrote about it, then only musicians could write about music, only artists could yes. write about art, only filmmakers could write about films. So yes. uh, yeah. it's sort of a thing that we put upon ourselves. That's right. That I, criticism I, I, we put on ourselves. That's right. And I think, I think that was important to me to see if by being a newcomer to writing about what we call classical music, I could, I, could, I could find something new to bring to it, if you like, you know, obviously thinking that mm -hmm. there must, has to be a worth to what I'm doing. So I was, I was interested to see in a world that is very sort of sorted in terms of who writes about the music and how it's covered and what its coverage is and where it belongs in the culture, if I, I, I might, you know, sort of introduce something else. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting because, again, they don't, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm talking about they, but the establishment, the institutions of classical music, they're kind of suspicious of, of an outsider coming in because they're, they're worried. That, I don't know what they're worried about, actually, but I think they're definitely <laughs> sort of concerned that you might sort of, um, yeah, you might, you might infect it with, with outsider influences, you know, and that you might sort of um, dilute it and diminish it. Whereas, in fact, my intention would be absolutely the opposite, that I would want to bring it out yeah. into the world and, and celebrate it as a, a kind of sign of, 
a lingering sign of intellectual rigor, you know, a, a lingering sign of, of music that still has magical properties rather than just being turned into a, a kind of constant commercial drone. Right. An important topic in the book is your sort of search for this value of writing about music. And uh, you quote Virginia Woolf as writing, all descriptions of music are worthless, actually rather unpleasant. But thankfully, you do kind of come to the conclusion that there is a great deal of value. And, and I love that you say that it becomes a, a performance, its own performance. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's, it, it, it's something I've always believed in. It's, it, 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 you know, it's, it's a situation where some love it and some hate it. But I've always found my favorite critics in whatever form, they're writing about um, film or theater or music is itself a performance, a great performance, a great piece of writing that, that adds something to the performance they're writing about. And I've always, I've always been interested in that, the idea of, of not necessarily using facts or just describing in a, um, a, a, a prosaic way what you've heard and, and just grading it three stars or four stars or eight out of ten, but trying to capture and represent what you've heard through how you write about it and, and, and how you yourself perform, as if the performance of, you know, your writing as a performance is part of the performance of the piece of music. And I've always been interested in that. Um, so uh, sometimes you're not necessarily describing the music that you're, you hear. And this is where, oddly enough, Virginia Woolf was an influence, for better or worse, on my writing. So Virginia Woolf and Lester Bangs. But you're, 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 you're working out, you know, how it's affected your imagination. You're, you're talking about how your imagination has been changed because of the piece of music, which is, you know, sometimes can wind people up because they just want to know how many stars you're giving it, whereas you want to write in a much more emotional, turbulent sort of transcendent rhapsodic way about a piece of music that you like and and sometimes you neglect to give the necessary facts but you're not interested in the facts you're interested in the magic of the music and you want to try and transmit your response to that uh, through words uh, and obviously sometimes you know writing about music where where the you know a lot of the composers certainly the classical world world would say that the music is saying it all it seems sometimes futile to then try and put it into words but I guess that's another challenge I was giving myself you know how do I put this into words well I think you do a fantastic job of it I mean there's really so much passion behind what you're writing and you added to my playlist <laughs> exponentially of things I need to listen to after reading the book because there was so much passion behind it. I really hate the star system. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Four stars, five stars, whatever. It was that moment when music started to be graded like you, you would grade a toaster or an iron. You, you, yeah. You, <laughs> you know, the, late, the latest Neil Young album, Four Stars, and it, it really broke my mm. heart in a way. I, I think to some extent it was the beginning of, an, of the end of a certain kind of writing about rock music that um that started to happen in the 90s you know the 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 immense amount of of writing about rock music that that tended to be uh, often just um you know there's definitely you know a role for it but for me i i i was weaned on a different kind of writing about the arts you know that that, that would never have have ended up giving something, um, you know, four star. I can't imagine Susan Sontag or, or, you know, sort of giving something <laughs> seven out of ten. It just seemed to be such a sort of miserable shortcut, you know. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, for <laughs> Susan Sontag, four and a half stars. <laughs> I think, Paul, that you're the first person of our generation, meaning people who grew up going to record stores and listening to music on vinyl, who rhapsodized so much about streaming services as you do and and i confess i love them too it's so it's great to have all this music at my fingertips but you know i do worry about the sustainability of it sure. um given that the creative talent seems to be pretty disgruntled about it and i'm yeah. wondering i mean i know a lot of pop rock musicians who really loathe all these streaming mm. services but i'm wondering is the classical community how do they feel about the streaming and is it better for them? Has it made, you know, because you're, you know, you're saying I get all this classical music yeah. at my fingertips now. It's mm. it's newly available to me. So do you think this is an aid to the classical music community or how do they feel about it? Well, I, I, one of the things I found interesting about classical music in itself was its adaptability. And I think that's what mm -hmm. fascinated me because I was always aware, even before this year, it was, it was obvious to me that, that, that a certain period of rock and pop was coming to one end, if you like, you know, 50, 60 years of, of, of 
imperial presence, but it wasn't going to last forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was fascinated by that, what would happen next. Obviously, since the end of vinyl, you know, there's been a substantial change in, in what rock and pop is, because effectively it was for vinyl. Its format was vinyl. Uh, and then this year, obviously, has, has, has sort of probably accelerated where we were going to go over the next 10, 20 years anyway, as it has done with many things. Classical music's always adapted, and I was interested in how classical music is adapted, because even when it seemed completely out of fashion, completely irrelevant to people who ha had access to the kind of music they wanted, and that seemed nothing of any interest to them, it kept changing and, and moving forward. And, and when the score disappeared, you know, just the score, and then it became recorded music, Classical music was never something necessarily made for records, but it still adapted and kept moving. And, I, and I, I thought to myself, it was interesting when I heard a piece of classical music through streaming on my wireless headphones. It seemed more exciting and appropriate than hearing a piece of rock or pop through that method because you were losing all the context of rock and pop, whereas classical music, just suddenly you were hearing a great mind inside your mind. And, and I got very excited by hearing very odd, obscure, wonderful pieces that I suddenly had access to through streaming. And I was thinking about it in a completely mm -hmm. impractical way, merely as the music, not what it was going to do to the economy of music, to the music business. Because I guess that I, I, I'm one of those people who think there's so much music to listen to anyway, that will take care of itself. No one necessarily has an entitlement to earning money from any particular way that they decide. Musicians have always consistently struggled with making money. Mm -hmm. And there's been a weird 50-year blip where lots of musicians have suddenly made lots of money. Uh, and then that, that seemed to be that was always going to be the way. But I, I, di I didn't ever believe it was going to be the way. So I guess I, I came in a slightly um, romantic way to streaming, just uh, uh, the pure access to all this wonderful music, rather than worrying about necessarily its sustainability, its future, or the fact that the plugs could be, you know, the, the power could be turned off and it would all disappear. So once I'd got rid of my vinyl and got rid of my CDs uh, and, and was re relying on Wi-Fi, suddenly I, I, it would all be thrown away. So it, it was a blessing, but absolutely also a curse that it could all disappear at a moment's notice. But I was, I was in the moment of suddenly listening to all this music. And, and I must confess, not necessarily considering what it meant, I, I've always assumed those things would take care of themselves because they always seem to have done over centuries. Right. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, I was amused by, uh, you mentioned Debussy and Schoenberg also having similar concerns with recorded music, yes, can you a lot of the it? same concerns yeah. with people. So, you know, I guess all new technologies always have sort of this element of apocalyptic hysteria. You know, people are always Every new technology, everybody thinks it's going to be the end of something. Yeah, well, well, the new technology of vinyl, you know, effectively created pop and rock. You know, the 45 RPM yeah. single, the 33 and a third album, that was just a technological decision. And then it was utilized uh, in, a, in a, a fabulous fashion to create these wonderful little miracles. And, and I suppose I was interested technically what would happen to a musician's mind because now we have streaming and now we have these unbelievable new restrictions and dangers because music to me has always been the first sort of artistic response to troubled, turbulent times. So I, I, I guess I was thinking that way, you know, oh, how will a mu musician actually respond to this now that everything has been taken away from them, if you like, you know, they're, their, 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 you know, money, their, their formats, their, you know, they're still going to want to make music. They're still going to want to communicate. How is that going to happen? I, I think I was probably deeply, deeply and practically interested in that. What impact will this have on, on music and music making and the minds of musicians in the way that all sorts of wars and revolutions and plagues have, have had an impact on, on the history of classical music? It's always responded. It's always adapted. It's always emerged in a new radical form. Uh, so I, I, I suppose in a purely almost scientific way, uh, sort of research and development way, I, I was more interested in just seeing what the changes will be because of, of, of the enormous changes that have happened in the 21st century, both, you know, uh, sort of um, environmentally and econ economically. The CD format was really suitable for classical music, I think, because of... Um... Yeah, because of the length of like symphonies and pieces, and and you know when you do, like pop music on CD, also they were focusing on bonus cuts. Mm. <laughs> There's very rarely bonus cuts on a classical you know, CD album. Yeah, well, I think the CD was effectively invented for to put a bit of you know a whole Beethoven symphony on there, or yes. you know the seventy minutes came not in honor of of the rock and pop length, but of classical's length. 
uh, and then Rock and Pop had to deal with it. And of course, it's, it, it, it blew that apart because the whole notion of the album was the two sides, the, the moving yes. in and the moving out, and that blew that apart. And there was all sorts of attempts to adjust to it in the last 20, 30 years, but I don't think it was ever, ever done. The spirit of the two-sided vinyl album still held on. But yeah, absolutely. Classical music didn't have to worry about things like that. Whatever changes there are in formats, in contexts, the pure idea of a piece of music of, of, of any particular length, four minutes, 11 minutes, 32 minutes, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily have to worry about those changes. It's never worried before and it still doesn't have to worry. Whereas once you take the, those foundations away from rock and pop, you know, the, the mm-hmm. rock and pop then has to, those kind of musicians have to find new ways of working out what a piece of music is. I guess that's why it's sometimes, you know, where pop music is now, it's almost only needs to be 30 seconds long. It just needs to come in, make its point and disappear again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, 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 that's, that's all it's about. It's about a quick fix, a quick sensation. And I, I was always intrigued when that moment would happen. I guess it started to happen a little bit with TikTok where your, 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 the length of a single, the length of a pop moment was only a few seconds. Yes. Mm. I'm too slow for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I like a piece of music that lasts about three hours, personally. You know? Yes. <laughs> I'm all for the three or four hour music yeah, piece. Yeah, I, 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 try to, I, I try to sell it to people when I was talking in the book. I try to sell it to people a bit like a boxed set, you know, when they think, do I really have to listen to, you know, the entire string quartets of Mozart? And I say, well, think of it like a box set. You know, it's, there's, yeah. there's 10 parts. It's got all sorts of climaxes, all sorts of cliffhangers and all sorts of stories it tells. And you'll, you'll, you'll sit all night watching, a, you know, a Game of Thrones or, a, mm-hmm. uh, a, you know, a Queen's Gambit. Why not, why not have a listen to this and think about it in the same way? I don't know whether I'm winning with that argument, but that's how I feel about it sometimes. <laughs> you know? Oh, tonight I'm going to listen to all of, um, of uh, Shostakovich's string quartets, you know, and, and binge on it, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. I think it's a great plan. <laughs> I think I think we should let our listeners know it's pretty clear at this point that you have a fantastic sense of humor. You know, the book is, it's, it's a somewhat serious study of classical music and it's very passionate exploration. But then you frequently punctuate a thought with a very pointed and wickedly funny line. I was just, I was laughing out loud in the beginning you're having this very serious discussion about the last piece of music that you'd like to hear before you pass and and then at some point you finally just go oh the horror please don't let it be phil collins (laughs) i was just laughing so hard i just i love that you sort of mix that you know the serious with the the humor and i feel like this sort of further emphasizes your need to have this broad scope this full range of human emotions you know just the way you like to mix pop and classical is this sort of a conscious thing in your writing or just sort of comes naturally to you? Well, well I, I, it, <laughs> I, I suppose that, that sense of, of, of the last piece of music you ever heard being accidental did worry me, that, that instead of being yes. a, a, a ritual that I, I kind of had a moment and I thought, oh, you know, this moment that, you know, I'm obviously getting closer to in my life, you think, <laughs> oh, I, 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 you know, how will that be if accidentally it, it is, you know, <laughs> you know, Phil Collins or take that, you know, you know, that all. And also you, you have a nightmare that somehow in, in eternity, you, the last piece of music you ever listen to is what you take with you into that, into that eternity. So I'm, I'm somehow kind of uh. calculating that I can, make it something you know extraordinary by Beethoven or Morton mm-hmm. Feldman that I take with me through eternity <laughs> rather than the horror of, of it being in the air tonight you know <laughs> but what a great drum sound what a found <laughs> yeah the, the drum sound absolutely I'd take the drum sound <laughs> in your book you mentioned about one of the interesting thoughts in your book is when you sort of compared um if I'm getting this right, when you compare like a pop artist, they do, and it is speaking very generally, you know, mm. I think in your book it's speaking very generally, that a pop artist usually do their best songs when they're young or in their 20s. And then, then it sort of stops or that's frozen in time in a sense. But in the classical music world, like composers, they often do challenging or more demanding work as they get older. Um, yeah, yeah. They're constantly evolving, whereas I think in pop and rock, what tends to happen in the majority of the time is is that technique gets in the way. That The early instincts a musician has when they write, oh, you really got me, or don't you want mm-hmm. me, baby, in their you know, teens and 20s, 
they're doing it without really understand, almost understanding what it is they're doing. It's just it's just appearing, it's materializing, channeling it. And as they get older and they're aware of, of, of the more technical aspects of making music and, and, and more sort of self-conscious about the process, that initial inspiration dies away. And it, it is interesting that, you know, there's not much precedent for an, an aging rock musician because at one point, even an, a rock musician who reached 30 seemed too old. So it's, it's, it's a few <laughs> thing. And we, we're see, we've seen it with David Bowie. We've seen it with Leonard Cohen. We've obviously seen it with Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. That, mm-hmm. that that we're now at getting end of life music that's w- w- within that world. Uh, it was in classical music. The, the 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 I mean I mean it was one of the things that possibly initially put me off that classical music always seemed to be about death and was by people who were dead. But but the the the, the funny thing is that you realise those moments when they're writing towards the end of their life, um, they're filled with the same sort of inspiration and an energy and need to communicate even as their life and their energy is actually running out. And, and that, that to me was, 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 was an interesting thing that they, they, they could carry that right through to the end. They're still experimenting. They're still transforming and transforming their music, even as they, as they enter the end part of their life. And for, for a long time, a lot of you, you think of the, the great iconic rock performers like a Rolling Stones, they're constantly just trying to relive their, the moment they were 21 and, yeah. and it, it could be fascinating and it can be very entertaining but but, but mm-hmm. on, a, on another level you're looking for someone to transmit an experience that you're having you know the way that David Bowie taught us a lot about living and then he taught us a lot about how di- how to die oddly enough how to prepare mm-hmm. yourself for death and I think Bob yeah. Dylan obviously does the same thing and and that is a thing that you know even those of us that that you know listen to the Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop and all those things in the 60s and 70s now find that we need a little bit of that. And I, and I was finding it a lot in classical music with the end works of, of Beethoven, of Shostakovich, these extraordinary moments of facing up to eternity, to life and death. Uh, and you, you are beginning to find it, I think, in, in, in some rock and pop musicians. They're not just repeating their greatest hits. They are still experimenting, mm-hmm. working out, uh, what kind of music to write that is appropriate to where they are in their age? Hmm. You, you, you know, also greatly enough, you bring up uh, 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 women, uh, female uh, uh, composers, and one character that comes, uh, a character, a, a composer, is Ruth Crawford Seeger, who's Pete Seeger's mom, or is that my correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, she 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 wrote sort of. I, I think what was interesting with some female composers in the 20th century, they were very much sort of treated as a part. They could never break into what was a very male world. It was always assumed that after their studies, they they would disappear somehow and not not carry on as musicians and often just made a few great um, contributions, a a few great moments. So string quartet is is one of those sort of coming out of nowhere almost as a, 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 a singular act of of artistic sort of um, vision, uh, and and obviously elsewhere she she operates in a in a much more sort of uh, more famous uh, sort of role as a as a collector of folk music uh, 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 and generating a, a different kind of story. But her, her her appearance within classical music is is just extraordinary and and uh, and, and, and sort of is never developed, if you like. It's almost like there there, there was a a British musician, Elizabeth Lutyens, who, who, who was also uh, incredibly sort of prescient in terms of, mm-hmm. of how she approached her music and was almost like the very first British serial, serialist, if you like. And, and, and they never quite, you know, when, when they start, they're sort of looked upon with some suspicion as if it's not a woman's role to be experimental almost, you know, as if to listen mm-hmm. to Debussy was somehow almost a pornographic act. Uh, mm. And so they're they're looked upon with some sort of you know they never they're never introduced into you know there's, there's there, there was Britain and there was Vaughan Williams and Elizabeth Lutyens who's operating at the same time is never allowed into this this world it's a mm-hmm. it is it is a uh, a ridiculous sort of sort of indictment of how things were you know those weren't the days you know it, it was it, and then and then as they develop and they keep working on their music then they, they, they eventually just reach the point where they're then deemed old-fashioned so when right. they're newfangled they're ignored and then they're ignored later because it's considered that they're old-fashioned and there's never a moment where they're actually allowed into the 
the canon. There's there's all sorts of dreadful rigidities in classical music, and that's definitely one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, that that kind of female energy was somehow deemed inappropriate or irrelevant, even by by radicals within the world. You know, somehow they mm-hmm. were never allowed to find a space within it where they could enter the canon, if you like. They could become part of the of the narrative. I see. Huh. Yeah, I find that I find her really interesting. That's somebody I would want to read a whole biography on. I think this, you know, and and her sort of going to the folk music world is, you know, it's an interesting transmission from classical or. Well, I think again, it's that sense that there's no real difference in in, in yeah. many ways between one and the other in a certain mind. It's 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 not, there's not a division. They, they you can you can find fulfillment in both worlds and find what you need, and and if you have an agile, curious mind. You know, mm-hmm. I, th- I think she's probably battered by by a, a lack of recognition within the classical worlds, and and needs to find an area where she can develop without feeling that she's constantly pushing against something that's pushing back at her simply because she's a woman. Yeah, another interesting uh, composer that comes up in your book, and who I knew about slightly, and I always thought it was a fascinating figure, is uh, Cornelius Cardew. Yes. Um, He's interesting for many reasons because of his political views, which is pretty extreme even then. And the fact that he was a avant-garde composer, that as his career went on, he became more, definitely not mainstream, but he started writing, you know, sort of songs or people's music. Can, well, do you do you like his music or do you have you know, any comments about him? Well, I, I think it was interesting that he, he studied under both Stockhausen and John Cage and uh-huh. then sort of turned his back on both. And and his early avant-garde experiments, I think he 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 was concerned in a way that for someone who was so interested in 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 workers and workers' rights and in in progressive values, that the music he was writing was of absolutely no interest to 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 the working man, if you like, you know, being yeah. sort of generalising, and and then wanted to try and reach you know the ears of people who wouldn't necessarily enjoy avant-garde music and, mm-hmm. and started to write these songs that were very disconcerting because he wasn't necessarily a songwriter and he wasn't able really to write accessible songs in the way mm-hmm. that he wanted to that could reach the people he wanted to reach uh, his influence really comes from his more experimental pursuits as he you know as he rejected cage and rejected stockhausen which was quite right, because in a way, certainly with John Cage, he was basically encouraging that, you know, reject your teacher, right. find, find your own way. But yeah. then Cornelius Cardew sort of introduced into English experimental music. You know, the English sensibility is very anti-experimental. It's, yeah. it's not really an avant-garde mentality. And he introduced uh-huh. a, a sort of English experimentalism in the 1960s that made contact with a lot of, of similar instincts that were going on in rock music, you know, with people like Soft Machine and King Crimson uh-huh. and Spontaneous Music Ensemble. And Cornelius Cardew becomes a huge influence on Brian Eno uh, uh-huh. and, and, and is a sort of mentor to Brian Eno. So Cornelius they Cardew... They knew each other, right? They, yes, they worked together. There, there was uh-huh. all sorts of ensembles that they would work with each other on. The Portsmouth Sinfonia was a classic one where oh, non-musicians yeah. would basically form an orchestra to play the classics. Uh, which is wonderful. It's like classical music melting in front of your ears. It's a wonderful sort of thing. (laughs) And and Kimmy and I know that. Kimmy and I are very aware of Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's yeah. a new book out on them. Yeah, that just came out. Oh, I, 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 yeah. I, I, I love the idea of them so much. And 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 I think what was interesting in, about Cardew was more the the impact he had, not direct, not, not directly. It was an indirect um, influence that he had on 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 English music and. Uh, and it is interesting the way that the sensibility that he brought into English music in the 60s, this this um, English, I guess they called it minimalism. It was a sort mm-hmm. of related to the American minimalism. It, 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 it didn't really go anywhere in, in a sense with other musicians, but it entered it, it entered the outside world through people like Brian, you know, who, who took his yeah. ideas on and put them in a different context. So everything. Brian Eno ever did really sort of came out of his of his association with Cornelius Cardew, and I and I guess I wanted to put a lot of Cornelius Cardew into the book to also mm-hmm. explore how this world that's called classical, you know, it goes from Mozart and Schubert and Brahms and and Haydn, but there's also within it still John Cage and Cornelius Cardew. 
and that mm -hmm. that that's how vast classical music is. That that, that it, it it isn't one thing or another. It's many many different things, all within the, the same space. Can you can you actually like um, define like the the ultimate composer in the twentieth century? Is that possible for you? So, I mean, I know it's it's kind of a naive question, but like, is there one artist that comes to mind or composer that comes to mind that defines to you what twentieth century classical music is? Well, I, I, I'm always hesitant to, to to ever make a definitive decision, as you probably noticed reading the book. Um, if somebody asks me something like that, I'll come back to them two days later with a, with about 423 examples. Um, <laughs> this is like a four or five star type of question. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, once it, I, I, I like the way, even though I'm saying this about my own book, I like the way that John Cage haunts the book in a way. I mean, a few characters uh -huh. go through the book like Glenn Gould, like John Cage, like Pierre Boulez, they, they, they sort of always turn up in the book as, uh, uh, you know, I'm sort of exploring them. So they keep appearing because I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in working out what it is they are, what, what it is they're doing. And I always found that John Cage, who makes, you know, is obviously to some people avant-garde and therefore unlistenable, actually made mm -hmm. very, very beautiful music, made very beautiful music during the, 1940s and 50s, yeah. where everyone else in that world was making incredibly um, aggressive music as a response to the, you know, breakdown yeah. of society after the Second World War. Was Cage, Cage was making this very beautiful music, sort of uh, almost lonely music. And yeah. I've always felt his ideas and his philosophy and his anticipation of the future and his belief that the future will unfold over centuries made him very interesting as a as a as a personality, as a philosopher. Um, uh, and so I, I, I guess to some extent I would I would um, suggest John Cage, but but it's not necessarily, you know, um, yeah. a, a, a conventionally a classical music composer in that sense. I mean, those that have ended up my favourite, more obvious uh, composers in the twentieth century, they tend to be those that over fifty, sixty years kept making extraordinary music, uh, often through something else I cover in the book, the string quartet, you know. So I, mm -hmm. I loved people like a Sostakovich or an Elliot Carter or a Bartok that were constantly reviewing and renewing the idea of what you could do within the format of the string quartet. Or all the, you know, John Cage wrote great string quartets. Sir Peter Maxwell mm -hmm. Davis wrote great string quartets. I'm fascinated by this endless um, way of, of remodeling something that seems to have run out of energy centuries ago and people mm -hmm. keep coming back to it and finding a way forward. Maybe my answer to the question is not necessarily a composer, but, but is actually the, the string quartet. If you want to find out what happened mm -hmm. to classical music in the 20th century, you know, find a book that tells you all the great, most of the great string quartets of the 20th century which might actually be my book because I, I do try and do that in a way. I, I, I tell the history of classical music in the 20th century very much through the progress of the, of the string quartet. There's a lot of avant-garde composers come to what is a very yeah. limited form in a way to see if they can add to, to, to its history that, that is now centuries old and constantly come up with new ways of, of refreshing it. It's an interesting format, the, uh, the string quartet. Which is what two violins, a viola, and a cello. Is that the usual instrument? Yeah, and I think what 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 excited me about it, you know, coming from rock and pop and jazz, where you've got your your power trios and your jazz quartets and these ensembles, I think it was absurdly, and it sounds really naive, that that the big breakthrough for me with classical music as well was when I realised that it didn't necessarily have to be the symphony, the concerto, the big orchestral pieces, yeah. but often it was these solo pieces, these sonatas, these little you know small eccentric ensembles of unusual instruments that, mm -hmm. that, that, that some of the best music was appearing, you know, the, the more intimate, lonely music, if you like. It, it didn't necessarily have to be these epic pieces. It right. could be these much more kind of, um, yeah, lonely pieces of music, um, more modest pieces uh, made up out of whatever instruments happened to be lying around. And that was, that was a huge sort of, uh, there was lots of psychological breakthroughs with my making it into the, into classical music, and that was that was a big one when I when I started to listen to whole histories of solo cello playing, you know, going right back to Bach. Um, the the constant 
incredible ways of using these acoustic instruments in the most extraordinary way. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to those cello suites by Bach, I, they sound so contemporary to me still. Yes, um, yes. I, it's kind of amazing. I think that's what streaming did for me. It, it, it liberated that sense of this music being necessarily centuries old. It, it simply existed in, in, a, in a new space and time. Chronology broke down. Streaming really, for me, encourages that. And music can make, you know, it can make a, it, it can take advantage of that, if you like. It, it, it can exist in a space that isn't necessarily, you know, 1862 or 1943. It just is, you know, now in your mind and your, in your imagination. Do you make a distinction between recorded music and live music, specifically in the classical music world? Not, not, not really, no. I think um, my whole experience really with classical music tends to be biased towards listening to it and, mm-hmm. and, and, and creating... <laughs> creating endless playlists that I started to view as being a bit like sort of <laughs> sonic sculptures. You know, some of them could be over four days long, you know. Right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the, 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 you know when, when I would go to classical concerts, there was still something about the rigidity of them that, that concerned yeah. me. Even when they were experimental concerts, they still seemed to follow formalities yeah. that really I couldn't quite understand. It seemed to distract me, the clothing that they apparently needed to wear. Yeah. The the order of events, the lack of imaginative programming, what we were talking about earlier, putting unusual things together. They yeah. always seem to be the same sort of programs, the same composers put together, the same sort of um, the lights were always on, which right. always disturbed me. Uh, so that, that was just a weird idiosyncrasy of coming from rock and pop where there was a dynamic yeah. to a live performance that oddly enough didn't seem to happen in in my view with, with in, in a classical concert no smoke bombs no strobe lighting <laughs> yeah I, I, I would have liked to have seen that i mean i loved it when your cages and your cards you started to sort of play around with with what you could do with a performance you know that those yeah. kind of imaginative uses of stages and, and musicians uh, but mostly I, I i i would sometimes would go to the most extreme performance of an extreme composer uh, and, and be really surprised how it was still presented in a in a, in a yeah. very almost neutral manner. I was going to say, like an artist like Glenn Gould, who did not, who just refused to play live after a while and mm. focused on this recording and how yes. he was so modern as opposed to recording, like doing edits, you know, well, using it, the studio it, as an instrument. He, he did that thing that a lot of classical musicians didn't do. I remember this was what was interesting about Brian Eno. Brian Eno started to record instrumental music that came out of a classical context in the same way that he would record rock and pop. He recorded it with that sense of sonics. He he said he was always so disappointed hearing a recording of something by Steve Rice because of how puny it sounded. And I think that was the big sort of difference. You know, rock and pop came out of the recording studio, this remarkable instrument. And classical music never particularly used the, the recording studio really well. And Glenn Gould was one of the few that really understood its potential. I always felt that if he'd lived, he would have been a producer. Yeah. Um, because that's towards the end of his life. But that was what he was beginning to do. He was really beginning to, and obviously his great radio programs, they, they were... He was exploring sonic potential of the recording studio without worrying that it somehow undermined the composition by not necessarily being part of the composition. And yeah. Glenn was almost an anomaly in that sense, you know. He's sort of the Joe Meek of the classical music world. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that. And he, he had the ego of a producer, you know, and, and the producer yeah. is the great conductor, if you like, of popular yeah. music, the, the one that makes the sound in the way that conductor makes the sound of classical music. And I, I, I just thought Glenn Gould would have been such an extraordinary producer. He was almost like a prototype Brian Eno in that sense. He, yeah. Eno understood that, that, that it was important to try and make a, a, a instrumental music sound unbelievably fantastic in the way that you could do that with a really trivial piece of pop music. Yeah. But classical music often did, didn't do that. And I, I, I often thought it would, be, it would have been fantastic to have heard Glenn Gould really become a producer of the music he, he, he really liked from Bach to Hindemith, you know? Yeah, yeah, endlessly a fascinating figure. I wish him and Eno met and did something in the studio together. Yeah, there you go. That's 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 what you would want. <laughs> fantasy combinations, yeah. <laughs> yeah fantasy. <laughs> so, Paul, you're still active with the, is it the Royal Academy? Academy of Music or Royal Music Academy? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm Yeah, it's the, it's, the, the it's the Royal Academy of Music, and, and I do 
I mean, some of the things that I tend to do there I, I, are in the book. I, w I would interview musicians that gave me this great opportunity, Ollie Newson, John Adams, um, and a, a few that, that aren't in the book, you know, I've, I've interviewed there. And I, I love doing that um, just for a few students. It's not necessarily public, although I've made it public now by putting some of them in the book. And I, and I do... I, 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 I was always interested when I started working with, with some of the young composers that their sense of repertoire was magnificent within the classical world but seemed to dry up when it reached rock and pop. And I was always so disappointed when a wonderful young composer would tell me that their favourite guitarist was Brian May of Queen. And, and so <laughs> somehow this was disappointing to me. And I wanted to show them. I, I wanted to show them Can, and I wanted to show them, you know, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to show them other things yeah. to see what impact that would have on their music. Maybe spoiling their their purity. I don't know. But but I was I, I wanted to introduce a different kind of repertoire, a different kind of you know, yeah. even thinking about people like Cornelius Cardew and, and introducing this other sense of, of of classical music into their understanding of classical music. So I. I, I started to, you know, um, do the occasional sort of um, lecture and seminar uh, as, a, as a continuation of, of my own education, if you like, you know, and, th and then to, to an extent, that's what the book becomes. It becomes a story of me learning uh, and then almost almost beginning to learn how to teach to an extent, uh, still as a non-musician. But then Brian Eno was a non-musician. A lot of great electronic musicians are non-musicians. It is right. interesting how much music can be made by uh, effectively non-musicians. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Even like somebody like Joe Meek, non-musician. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely, because they're, they're dealing with this, the spatial sort of sense of, of music, the sonics, the, 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 yeah. the power, the presence, the dynamics. It, it, it's absolutely crucial to how pop and rock developed and to an extent did go missing with classical music. Classical music sort of, sort of turned away from that. Uh, at a time when you know someone like a, a Brian Eno didn't, and and I think, you know, therefore it wasn't deemed to be classical music, but but essentially, in many ways, it was part of the tradition. I'm always amazed when I meet people who are sort of at the top of their game in a field like music, and they seem to have this lack of curiosity for anything outside their immediate range. Um, that's kind of shocking to me because I, I, most of the musicians I know have pretty eclectic tastes in music, um, you know, and I'm wondering how did these young composers that you lecture to, how do they respond to uh, when you say, you know, go listen to Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't follow through that much. I, I got the feeling, <laughs> I got the feeling that, you know, you, you don't want to interfere too much with their natural sort of sense of what they right. were interested in. I, would, I, would just, I just thought there was an awful lot of music they were missing in the same way that there was an awful lot of music that I'd been missing. Um, it, it is interesting, that sort of sense of, of listening to more music. I, I, I found, I don't know if this is, is, is relevant to what you're saying, but I, I, I did find with some of the responses to the book that, or, or my occasional writings about starting to listen more thoroughly to classical music, that some people thought I'd made some weird decision where I'd, I'd completely dismissed rock music or pop music or jazz as if it was an either or. Whereas it's, it's a bit like with love, you can love so many things in so many different ways. In the, the, it, just right. because you're starting to listen to one sort of music, it, it absolutely doesn't mean that you'll you know, make some kind of betrayal <laughs> of everything. You've, yeah. in, in a way, you're saying, no, this as well, and this too, and this should all be mixed together. And why don't you try this? Because if you like that, don't like things that are like that uh, that sound the same as that but but push further out into this because i think you, you'd be absolutely staggered how much extraordinary music it, there is out there that you would really love that you've not considered either because it's been sort of not shown to you or not made made apparent or because you assume you wouldn't like it because it isn't what you usually listen to yeah it's interesting we watched um a video on youtube that you uh, interviewed an interview you did with alex ross and his discovery of pop music um and that was really interesting you know that he was listening to perubu and sonic youth and and that makes perfect sense to us um yeah. you know this juxtap this juxtaposition and I, and I was always interested with alex ross that he was one of the very few within the world of classical music that was making those moves he was making in a reverse pattern the same sort of discoveries that, that I was making from the other direction, if you like, you know, 
but there was a right. world where the borders of of, of the, that music he started to listen to weren't that far away from what the, the the more extreme music he'd be listening to in classical music. There was a place where they made contact, you know. And as I understand it, he got some pushback as well, similar to you, that he was betraying his classical roots. It's weird, isn't it? It, it is some fear somehow that you, 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 it's almost like you're part of a tribe and you mustn't you mustn't um, make friends with another tribe. But I've never understood that that approach to things, that no. kind of strange dogma, you know, the dogma of it all. It seems to me Ooh, the whole right. point of it is that it's fluid, which is why I love streaming, because all the borders effectively had broken down. You know, you could just move very fluidly from one thing to another without necessarily having to worry that you were being fined or, or, or told off <laughs> for, for doing so. Or maybe mm. I am in some sense. Maybe if I looked at my bill, I would see that by... <laughs> by going from Mozart to Mertzbau, I, I am actually being fined every time I do it. <laughs> uh, getting a red check by your name. <laughs> My musical credit is very bad. The beauty of your book is that, is that it's so open. I mean, it's very uh, open approach to look at music. And that's what I like about your writing in general. I mean, it's just, it's just a very open-minded like a journey you're going to take, you know, sometimes it's not the destination, but the journey itself that's important. And, you know, when I read your work, I feel the journey is very important. And reading um, A Sound Mind, I feel like I'm going on a, on a this great travel trip, great journey. And it's really a remarkable book. Yeah, I'm blushing now. <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> so, so, Paul, do you, do you finally feel like you're part of the classical com community or do you think you'll be a perpetual outlier? And does it really even matter? It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, there was a moment of yeah. a, few, a few years where, where I would be asked to do panels and talks and uh, as if somehow I was bringing some secrets of rock's accessibility into that world. But I soon realized that, that, that what I was saying wasn't really what they wanted to hear. I think they thought that I would give them some clue about how they could make classical music popular to a young audience, even though I was in my bloody 50s. Uh, so in the end, I sort of, I, I think I said in the book that in the end, I realized that I was creating a music scene of one. Uh, I, I was creating my, you know, in a, in a, at a time when music scenes in a way have broken down, they've become much more abstracted and they're not like they used to be cities, genres, labels. They're much more abstract. I guess that's what I was doing as, as someone who had grown up with music scenes and loved music scenes. The music scene, as I saw it, seemed to have, have disappeared, certainly at my, you know, for someone of my age. So I decided to make my own music scene, if you like. And, and, I, and, right. and, and I guess a sound mind is a book about that music scene, which I have invented. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Are any of your playlists, do you make any of them public? You, you, no, I don't, funnily enough. No. Um, I, I don't know why. I, I think that's a general fear of social media in general that I've always looked upon yeah. as the kind of thing that, that, that would lead to the apocalypse. And to some extent, we've, <laughs> we've, we've had that recently proved. So I, I always kept my, my distance even in to the extent of making the playlist public. So they, they were just secret sonic sculptures, you know, for a, right, a, for a music right. scene that, that, that consisted of only one person. <laughs> well, it works. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was fantastic, Paul. Thank you so much. Thank yes. you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it greatly. So everyone, thank you so much for listening to Book Music. And join us next time when we will be discussing a new Faber lyric collection called Side by Side, Selected Lyrics by Robert Wyatt and Alfie Benj, with an introduction by Jarvis Cocker. So that should be fun. I think we'll both enjoy that. Yeah. Josh and I are huge Robert Wyatt fans. Mm -hmm. And uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all the latest news. And we have playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, Paul, we're going to have an interesting time putting together a playlist for your episode. I'll <laughs> wait. Um, and we have links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you very much, Paul. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very Paul. much. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>